What we're going to do this morning, we're going to read our passage this morning, which is Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8. Romans chapter 12, verses 1 through 8, and then we're going to pray and dive right into our teaching. So let's look at God's word this morning. Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1, reading through verse 8. This is the word of God. The Apostle Paul writes, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If in prophecy, in proportion to our faith, if service, in our serving, The one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy, do so with cheerfulness. This is the word of God. Let's pray. God, we just read that we are to not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of our mind to seek what is good, what is acceptable, what is perfect in your sight, and to do your will. God, that is our heart's longing. And we do so now. God, that we want to worship you. We want to serve you. We want to sacrifice for you, God, but we need your help. And God, as we hear your word this morning to us, as you pour out your spirit upon us, we pray that these words would not be just words on a page, but they would be living words that are etched into our hearts, into our minds, and into our lives as we seek to serve you, Lord God, our King and our Savior. In the name of Jesus, we pray all these things. Amen. So we're in week two of basic Christianity. That's what we've been calling this series in Romans, and we revisited it last week. And we've been calling This series in the book of Romans, Basic Christianity, we've been calling it that for a reason. And the reason is, is because in many ways, this book, Romans, written by the Apostle Paul, gives us the basic building blocks of what Christianity is and what it is Christians believe. That's what the book of Romans is. It's the basic building blocks of what it is Christians believe as followers of Jesus. And in that way, it's a lot like algebra. Algebra, if you remember, go back to algebra, go back to your first algebra class that you had in seventh grade, right? Algebra really does lay the foundation for every advanced type of math, doesn't it? And you remember the equation that you start out your algebra class with. Does anybody remember it? It's y equals mx plus b. Was the right answer. Obviously, you guys haven't been to middle school in some time. It's y equals mx plus b. Once you get that building block in place, you can advance to higher forms of math, math like trigonometry and geometry. And last week, what we did in order to kind of refresh our memory in the book of Romans is we took a closer look at the 
two most basic building blocks of Paul's letter to the Romans, the two most basic beliefs that all Christians throughout all times in all places have believed. And that first building block, if you remember, was what we called the bad news, which is the bad news of human guilt before a just and holy God. And you saw Paul in Romans chapter 1 through about halfway through Romans chapter 3. What Paul does is he gives us this picture of a cosmic courtroom where God himself sits on the judge's bench over every single human being. And what Paul does for three straight chapters is he systematically shows that all people from all walks of life, whether you are a religious person or an irreligious person, whether you're spiritual or whether you're unspiritual, all are on trial and standing before God's judgment in his courtroom. And if you were with us last week, you know what that verdict is. According to Paul and according to the entire testimony of the Bible, the verdict is the same for every single human person. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We are all guilty before God. And what Paul is doing in those verses is he's not just kind of making up new stuff. Paul is actually drawing on a lot of the imagery and a lot of the testimony of the Old Testament. One of the great places to see this is in Hosea chapter 5, beginning in verse 14, where there the prophet Hosea is telling even his people, the people of Israel, God's people, he's saying, hey, even you Stand guilty before God in his courtroom. And he writes these words to God's people. Speaking for God, he says, For I will be like a lion to Ephraim and like a young lion to the house of Judah. I, even I, will tear and go away. I will carry off and no one shall rescue. I will return again to my place until they acknowledge their guilt and seek my face and in their distress earnestly seek me. So see, Paul is saying this is an image of us as well, that we all stand guilty before this lion, as Hosea describes it, this king, this lion, and his fierce justice. So we're guilty rebels before God. That's the bad news. But Paul says, hey, there is also good news. There is the greatest news you will ever hear Alongside human guilt, Paul says that God's grace and love for sinners has come in the person of Jesus. I like how one author put it. He said, when you look at the whole Bible, he said the cumulative testimony of the Bible is that when God sees the fallenness of the world all about him, his deepest impulse, his most natural instinct is to move toward Sin and suffering, not away from it. That's the testimony of the Bible. That God himself, in his love for sinners, moves toward sinners and shows his love and his grace for them. And Paul says, hey, there is no better place to see this than the cross of Jesus. The cross of Jesus shows that God himself was willing to be sacrificed and to stand guilty in our place, to be punished for our guilt. And Paul summarizes that in Romans chapter 5. He said, for while we were still weak, not when we were strong, not when we were good. He says, when we were still weak at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. 
For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. What Paul's saying is, hey, at the cross, God's mercies are displayed. The judge became the judged. At the cross, the guiltless received the guilty verdict. At the cross, God himself moved towards sinners like us. He moved towards sinners like us and he died in our place. In other words, the lion became the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's the good news. At the cross, the guilty receive grace. And now we turn to Romans chapter 12. And in Romans chapter 12, almost all commentators say that this chapter right here is the hinge upon which the entire book of Romans turns, that the whole book turns on these verses. So you can think of Romans chapter 12 a lot like Pro Bowl weekend. It's Pro Bowl weekend, right? Next week, everybody will be watching the Super Bowl, and four of you will be watching the Pro Bowl this afternoon because nobody watches the Pro Bowl. But the Pro Bowl signals this shift, right? This shift in our focus. We don't focus on 32 teams anymore. We just focus on two. We focus on two teams, which means everything that went before, the 17 regular season games, every snap, every throw, every run, every play call, even every injury, all of those come to a head this weekend as our focus is turned toward the Super Bowl next week. It marks a turning point, the hinge upon which the whole season turns. And you see a similar turn in Romans chapter 12. And it actually begins in the very first verses. You probably noticed it. Look again at Romans chapter 12, beginning in verse 1. Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Now, my middle school language arts teacher, my middle school English teacher, always told us, when you see the word therefore in a sentence, you always ask, what is the therefore, therefore? And that's a really instructive thing, not just for middle schoolers, but for us as well. What is Paul saying? Why does Paul say therefore? What is the therefore, therefore? Well, what Paul is saying is, in light of everything that I've said so far, given the guilt of human sin... And the grace of God in Jesus, stretching all the way back to chapter 1. Therefore, hear what I have to say. I appeal to you, brothers. Therefore, here's my conclusion. This is what everything was building for. Therefore, do this. And with this shift, this turn in Romans chapter 12, the letter begins to sound a lot different. Maybe if you've been listening to Romans or if you have went back and revisited some of these sermons, you realize a shift really does happen here. And it's not just with the word therefore. The tone of the letter changes, in fact. Sinclair Ferguson, he's a writer, he's an author, he's also a pastor. He said, do this practice. And this is something we can all do. You can go home and try this. He said, pick up the book of Romans and read it from chapter 1 all the way through chapter 11, and walk through word by word, verse by verse. And what you're supposed to do is circle every single time that God gives an imperative or a command, every time he tells us to do something. And for 11 chapters, circle how many times you see a command of God. 
There are 315 verses from Romans chapter 1, verse 1 to Romans chapter 11, verse 36. Can you guess how many commands that God gives in those 11 chapters? I'll give you the answer. It's seven. That's it. Seven commands in 315 verses. Another way of saying this is Paul spends far much more time and energy in reminding us of who God is and what God has done for us rather than on what we should be doing or what we should do for God. And what Paul is saying, hey, it's then and only then, once you realize how much God has done for you, that you can therefore respond to what God has done. And then in chapter 12 alone, we see 20 commands, 20 imperatives. The whole tone of the letter shifts to Paul saying, now that God's done this for you, now you do this. And the reason that I bring this up, the reason that this is so important, and it is why you have to get this, is that these verses show us a principle. And the principle is this, that every command of God flows from the grace of God. If you don't get that, and I, I don't think I'm being hyperbolic here, if you do not get that, you will never understand the God of the Bible, you will never understand Christianity, and you will never relate to God accordingly. Because you will always try and do good things for God so that he'll give you grace. But Paul says that is not how you approach God. No, how you approach God is you have to realize God loves you and has grace for you first. And then you obey God. So that's the principle. That's why I wanted to show you this this morning. That principle says that every command of God flows from the grace of God. I had a really good friend. Her name was Lauren. Lauren lived in Nashville when my wife and I lived in Nashville. Her name was Lauren Adams. And Lauren, we were actually teaching these very verses in a youth Bible study. And Lauren raised her hand. Lauren was a volunteer. Lauren raised her hand and said, I finally get it. This is like a marathon. But instead of starting at the starting line, we start at the finish line. And I was kind of puzzled by what she meant by that. So I said, well, what do you mean? She said, see, everybody lives life like a marathon. They think that if they try really hard and they run really hard and they train really hard, then in the end, they'll receive the reward and the approval for all their hard work and effort that they put in for God. That's how people treat life. But she said, if you believe in Jesus, if you believe in grace, then you start from the finish line. You don't run in order to earn God's approval. No, you run knowing that you already have God's approval, that you don't have to earn anything at all before God. He already loves you. He's already run the race for you in Jesus. In other words, we begin at the finish line. And again, look at what Paul says in verse number one. That's Paul's approach here as well. Paul says, therefore, brothers, I appeal to you, given the guilt of sin and given the amazing grace of God toward us in Jesus, we respond in gratitude, not in order to earn God's favor, but to run out of God's favor, to run in gratitude for already being approved in love, knowing nobody loves us more than Jesus. And so with that, with our remaining time that we have this morning, I'm going to do something a little bit different. We're going to look at these verses in Romans chapter 12, what we just looked at, Romans 12, 1 through 8. And 
I don't have headings for you. I don't have points for you. I don't have a sermon outline for you. Instead, what I want to do is I want to go verse by verse, and I just want to ask questions. I just want to ask questions, questions to Paul. And we're going to ask four questions this morning. That's all we're going to do. Four questions of Paul in Romans chapter 12. So we're going to begin. Question number one. Question number one. It's this. How then should we live? How then should we live? If we are to live a life of gratitude for how much God has shown us his grace and love in Jesus, then how should we live? And Paul actually gives us two answers to that question. The first is in verse number one. And there Paul tells us how we should live toward God. He says that this is how we should live in our vertical relationship with God. Verse 1, Paul writes, I appeal to you therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. So there's Paul's key for us. How do we respond to God and live for God? He puts it plainly right here. He says, how we should do so is to present our bodies as a living sacrifice. And now you see right away in these verses that Paul's language here sounds very familiar. If you've read the Old Testament, it sounds very familiar. It actually, what Paul's doing is he's extracting language from the Old Testament. Notice the words that he uses. He says present, or some translations put that offer. He says sacrifice, holy, acceptable, pleasing, and worship. All of these words are prominent in the Old Testament, especially in books like Leviticus. In Leviticus, God is setting up a system of how his people are to worship him. And to worship him, God commanded a temple to be built, priests who would offer sacrifices to God, and uh, these sacrifices would be offered of bulls and goats and lambs and grain, and all of this was in response to God's delivery from slavery in Egypt. And to give you a sense of this, Leviticus 1, chapter, uh, chapter 1, beginning in verse 3, notice how God commanded that people were to come and offer worship to him. We're told that somebody was to bring these priests an offering. And the writer of Leviticus says, if his offering is a burnt offering from the herd, that would have been like a bull. If his burnt offering is from the herd, he shall offer a male without blemish. He shall bring it to the entrance of the tent of meeting that he may be accepted before the Lord. He shall lay his hands on the head of the burnt offering and it shall be accepted for him to make atonement for him. Then he shall kill the bull before the Lord. And Aaron's sons, the priests, shall bring the blood and throw the blood against the sides of the altar that is in the entrance of the tent of meeting. And the priests shall burn all of it, all of the sacrifice on the altar as a burnt offering, a food offering, with a pleasing aroma to the Lord. That's how God commanded worship in the Old Testament. A holy, distinct animal without blemish would have been presented before God by these priests and they would sacrifice this animal and it would give off this pleasing and acceptable aroma to the Lord. And Paul is saying that as we think about how we're to respond to the grace and the mercy of God in Jesus, we should think a lot like this Old Testament picture. Paul says, we are to conceive of ourselves now being delivered by the grace of God as priests, not offering animals, not offering dead sacrifices, but instead we're to present our bodies as a living, 
daily, regular, continual offering and sacrifice to God, giving him our very selves. In other words, giving him everything we have. And now, when I was uh, first cutting my teeth in pastoral ministry, uh, I was meeting with a guy. Uh, I had given this, this guy had been recommended to me because he was a real skeptic. He was actually going to Vanderbilt University. And he had all these questions about Christianity. So I thought it would be a good practice. We were to read a book together. And we decided to read Timothy Keller's book, The Reason for God. Some of you have read that book. And The Reason for God answers some of the most common objections and the most common questions that people have about Christianity. And so we were working through this book week by week, chapter by chapter, and we came to the last chapter. And the last chapter was entitled, Where Do We Go From Here? What do we do now that we've heard everything that God has done for us? And I remember this quote still like the day that I first read it. It said this, a Christian is not just someone who is vaguely influenced by Christian teaching, but who has switched his most fundamental allegiance to Jesus. Christians understand the all-or-nothing choice that is forced upon us by the magnitude of what God has done for us in Jesus. And we read those verses out loud sitting at a TGI Fridays in Nashville, Tennessee, and the person who was sitting across the table from me responded. He said, yeah, I read something like that, and I don't want that. He said, I don't want to be a fanatic. I get this stuff, but I don't want to get carried away. I don't want to become overzealous. And now, as he was saying that, and I remember that incident, that comment was not only telling of him, it was also really telling of me. Because if I was being completely honest, I felt the exact same way. I felt the exact same way, that the only difference between him and me was that I said I was a Christian and he said he wasn't. And if I was honest with myself, I knew that the reason I didn't want to do that, I didn't want to give everything that I have over to God, is because in the deep parts, in the recesses of my heart, I realized there are parts of me I still don't want to give over to Jesus. There are certain things that I'm doing that I know I want to keep doing. There are certain things that I have that I don't want to give over to Jesus. And what resonated in my mind was this quote from an early church father. His name was Augustine. And if you know Augustine, he struggled with lust and sensuality his entire life. And he had this common prayer that he would say to God, very honest prayer. He would say, God, give me chastity, but not yet. <laughs> God, give me chastity, please. I want to follow you, but not yet. Anybody else resonate with that? <laughs> and see, what those things represent is that in the grand scheme of things is we still want to keep some of ourself for ourselves. We don't want to give everything over to Jesus. We still want to keep some of ourselves for ourselves. But Paul says, hey, in light of God's mercy, your vertical relationship with God it involves everything. A living sacrifice means all parts of your life, which means all parts of our life are on the table. This means financially. Financially. We can ask ourselves questions like this, like how do we spend our money? How do we save our money? How much money do we give away? Who do we give our money away to? All of these things should reflect a lifestyle of gratitude and service to God. That's what a living sacrifice is. Or you think of your sexual lives. Augustine surely did. 
Who do we sleep with? Who do we not sleep with? How should we view our gender and our sexual orientation and our sexual desires in light of the fact that nobody loves us as much as Jesus Christ? And the list goes on and on. The list is as all-encompassing as you want it to be. Our parenting, our friendships, our marriage, our singleness, our work, all of these areas belong to God. They are to be presented as a living sacrifice before God who has sacrificed so much for us. I love the quote from the Dutch theologian. His name is Abraham Kuyper. He said, There is not one square inch in the whole domain of our human existence over which Jesus does not say, Mine. All all of our life belongs to Jesus. Jesus rightfully can claim anything from us because he has sacrificed everything for us. And now, maybe a good diagnostic question would be to ask, how do we spend our time? It's a good place to start, right? Everybody has the same amount of time in a day, 24 hours a day. And I want to ask you, does your sacrifice of your time, does that reflect a life of living submission to God. And maybe a good way to ask this is, this is hard to ask of people who are here in this room, but hey, on Sunday morning, do you sacrifice one day a week for one hour a day to come and worship God with his people right here in this room, in this fellowship? And I know some of you hear that and you say, well, hold on. Paul is talking about all of life. He says all of life is worship. Leave it to a pastor to talk about coming to church. And I would say, yeah, that's true. However, let me ask you this. If a person can't sacrifice one day a week for one hour a week at a specific time and place, how can we ever expect to present our lives, our bodies as a living sacrifice every day, every hour, in all spheres of life? If you ask yourself a question like that, then we realize in the end, we still want to keep a lot of ourself for ourselves, including our time. And this is hardwired into us. This posture of wanting more for ourselves is completely hardwired into us. I was thinking of my children. We just bought a new table at our house. And my wife, being the gracious wife that she is, she bought all these new chairs, all these new chairs to go around this beautiful new table that she got off Facebook Marketplace. And of course, even though all the chairs match, everybody wants the same chair, right? That chair is mine. And if Jane tries to take a chair, Lainey will pipe up and say, no, that chair is mine, right? Because this is hardwired into us that what belongs to you belongs to me. Everything is mine. And this continues with us into adulthood, by the way. You know, we were having uh, Aaron Ellis, our worship director, our worship pastor, over for dinner the other day. And I love brownies. And so we're cutting out brownie slices for everybody. And there was a lot of kids. They have four kids. We have four kids. We were thinking about starting a mini church plant just there in our house because we have so many kids. And I'm cutting off these brownie slices. And what I'm doing is as I'm cutting the brownie slices, all the residue that's left on the spatula, I'm putting off onto my plate. Right? So I want, I want the extras. And then everybody gets one slice, and then I get one slice, plus everybody gets extras, and I have a nice mound that looks about this big, right? while everybody else has a square about this big. And my wife, being the gracious woman that she is, said, hey, why don't you give that to Aaron, our guest of honor? And now when it comes to brownies, <laughs> when it comes to brownies, I am under no pretension that I'm a good person. 
right? I am trying to squander as much brownie as I can for myself. It's mine. And this tainted the whole evening, by the way. Aaron and I still, we still have a little bit of a rift before us. But I'm just thinking, the whole time that he's eating that brownie, oh, you better be enjoying that thing. Because that brownie is mine. And what's more, right? Not only when we're kids, on into adulthood, but everything in our culture, all you have to do is scan through one of your social media feeds to realize that this vocabulary of mine is embedded into everything in our culture. How often have you seen a post that says, you do you, or look out for number one, or get yours? Paul says, hey, counter to social media... And counter to this hardwired DNA within us, this default position that we're all set with, Paul says, I appeal to you, brothers, do not think of your life as your own, but as priests in gratitude to God. Offer yourself as a living sacrifice, knowing God is number one and you are second. That's how we should live. So that's question number one. Very basic, how then shall we live as priests, as living sacrifices to the God of the universe? And that leads to a following question, one that immediately follows that, and that's the question of why. Why should we live this way? Why should we live this way? After all, if our default setting is set such that we should look out for self, then why should we live differently? And Paul says, well, the answer is very simple, because that's actually the only logical response if you grasp the grace of God. It's the only logical response. Verse 1, Paul says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God. In other words, in view of God's mercies in Jesus, in view of Jesus, who left his default position as king of the universe and became a servant, in view of Jesus, who did not look out for number one, but gave himself for broken broken people like us, in light of those mercies, Paul says, present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Capture those words, circle those words. This is your spiritual worship. And the translation doesn't do this passage justice because actually the Greek word for that term spiritual is the Greek word logikos. Does that sound familiar? is where we get the English word logical. Paul is saying this is the only logical response, the only logical way to follow God in response to Jesus. And so Paul, in verse 2, adds to this, and he says, therefore, because the world lives in the position of mine, Paul says, verse 2, do not be conformed to this world, verse 2, but instead... Be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good, what is acceptable, and what is perfect. So Paul's setting up an opposition here, isn't he? He's saying, hey, there are two systems of life, two ways to live in this world. One is the worldly way to live, living as if this world is all that there is and thinking that this world is the only thing that exists. And as such, the world says things like, look out for number one. Follow your dreams. Treat yourself. Defend yourself. Be true to yourself. Love yourself. Live your truth. Think of yourself for a change. There's a lot of self in there, isn't there? See, because that makes complete sense in a world in which this is all that there is. 
If this is all there is, then let's eat, drink, and be merry and live life as if the self is sovereign. But what Paul says is, hey, don't be like a chameleon. That's a chameleon way to live, right? A chameleon is shaped and looks identical to the world around it. And if this world is all that there is, that makes sense. But Paul says the other end of the spectrum looks a lot different. Paul says, be transformed in the renewal of your mind. Let God's mercies in Jesus shape the way you think, shape the way you act, and shape the way that you live with those around you and live in relationship to God. It's the only logical response. Now, there's this Danish philosopher, his name is Soren Kierkegaard. He had a wonderful parable that kind of illustrates this very well. Soren Kierkegaard wrote this parable. It was entitled, uh, The Foolish Day Laborer. And it's about this day laborer who lives just on, you know, daily wages, going out and working day by day in order to put bread on the table. And one day he receives an invitation. An invitation arrives at his house in a little mail, uh, in a little piece of mail. He opens it up and lo and behold, it's from the emperor of the kingdom. And the emperor writes, Dear day laborer, I invite you to come and marry my daughter, the princess of the entire kingdom, and to become a member of my family. And at first, the day laborer is elated, thinking, I have just went from rags to riches, from day laborer to royalty, to become the prince of the kingdom myself. And he sees that there's a time stamp on this date to come and marry his daughter. It's to take place at the end of the week. And as the day goes by and as the week moves on, he starts to really ponder what this would mean if he became the prince, the son of the emperor, and the husband to the princess. He realizes this invitation kind of has a bait and switch to it, doesn't it? See, because... If he would have invited me to dinner, that would have been great. I could have then told all of my friends, hey, the emperor invited me to eat with him. And then I could go and live my life as I've lived it. But I'd have this great story about how the emperor one time shined his favor upon me. And I can just completely live the rest of my life as if that was all that there is. But then he starts turning over in his mind thinking, but he's asking me to come and marry his daughter. That's something completely different altogether. See, dinner would be one thing. Then I could continue to live the life that I've lived before. But if I become the son of the king, then I owe him everything. See, if he just invited me to dinner, then I could get his stamp of approval. But if I am his son, then I owe him everything. It's the only logical response. I'll be constantly indebted to him. And the parable ends without him making a decision. And it's what he's forcing us to think. Kierkegaard does this so well. What he's forcing us to think about is if God has adopted us into his family, if Jesus, the son of God, is our older brother, and if God the Father is truly our Heavenly Father, then the only logical response can be in light of that mercy to give him everything that we owe. It's the only logical response. And in order to live that way, Paul says, you have to be transformed in the renewal of your mind. You have to be transformed in the way that you think because everything in our culture and in our world is moving in the opposite direction. You are like a fish swimming upstream. So how should we live? Paul says as priests, giving our bodies and living sacrifice to God. Why should we live this way? Paul says because it's the only logical response. And then question number three, 
Paul says, well, what does this look like? What does this look like to be a living sacrifice and live with a transformed mind? And now, if you've been hanging around the church for a while, sometimes we read verses like this, be transformed in the renewal of your mind. And this is a jumping off point for pastors to say, read your Bible more. Buy a systematic theology. Go and start outlining books of the Bible and memorize them verbatim. And those are great things, by the way. You should do those things. But that's not what Paul's saying here in verse 3. Paul says, verse 3, a renewed mind actually looks different. A renewed mind looks like a humble mind. Notice verse 3. Paul puts it this way. He says, be transformed in the renewal of your mind. For by the grace given me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. So you see what Paul is saying. Paul's saying a renewed mind that responds to the work of Jesus is a mind that does not think of itself in terms of the world, a mind that does not think of itself more highly than it ought, but rather one that thinks with sober judgment. Now, many of you don't know this. Dwayne Corey, who's our senior pastor here, Dwayne Corey Uh, during a time uh, when the church was in kind of a financial, uh, in deep financial need, he and his wife, Holly, decided, we're going to start cleaning the church to do the service to the church. And now he continues to do that today. Um, He gets paid some to it, but he doesn't have to do it. It's not like there's this strapping financial need that he has. And that means that when you go to the bathroom or When you come into this sanctuary or you look at how clean the windows are, how well everything is dusted, you realize that the senior pastor of our church is actually the one who comes in and sweeps. He's the one who comes in and vacuums. He's the one who comes in and dusts. And if you were to ask Dwayne, Dwayne, why do you do that? You do not have to serve in that way. The church doesn't need it anymore. You are the senior pastor. You know what he would say to that? He would say something like this, well, Daniel, duh, because nobody else cleans it right and nobody takes the trash out on time and you never dust your office, Daniel. It's disgusting in there. And if anyone doesn't put the boxes in the trash where they belong, I'm going to lose it. That's what he would say. But all joking aside, no, you know, the reason that he really does it is because like no person other than Jesus that I know, honestly, and I'm so grateful to have a person like this in my life. Nobody that I know thinks that their position or their job title or their experience or their expertise makes them higher or more lofty or better than anybody else. And because he doesn't measure himself according to the people around him or according to his title, instead what he does is he measures himself according to Jesus in light of Jesus. And lo and behold, that's exactly what Paul means by that phrase at the end of verse 3. You see what Paul says there? He says, think with yourself with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. A measure of faith, a measure, what that is, is that's like a ruler or a yardstick, something you measure yourself against. What this is saying, the measure of our faith is Jesus himself. That is who we are supposed to measure ourselves against. And only in that light will we ever think of ourselves as lowly and humble and gentle. Only in light of Jesus can we do that. And again, here you see two very radical and fundamentally different ways of living, don't you? Because when we measure ourselves, who do we usually measure ourselves against? Others. 
you know, I was just thinking about this. I was thinking about we had twins now two and a half-ish years ago. I can't remember. I've only slept four hours since then. But, uh, you know, one of the first times that we went out to eat, we went to Chili's. You know, we, we had the girls. The girls were really small at that time. They were still being breastfed. And we thought, well, we're going to venture out. We'll go to Chili's. And we have our two babies. And then we have our two older kids. So four kids going to Chili's together for the very first time. And about eight minutes in, all of a sudden, babies need to be fed. So they're screaming. Twelve minutes in, kids are quarreling with one another. Fifteen minutes in, somebody burns their hand on my fajitas. Right? And all of a sudden... I'm thinking, what did we get ourselves into? But then at an adjacent table right next to us, there was this other family. And this family could not get it together, right? Kids are throwing stuff. Kids are spilling stuff. Finally, they have to ask for the check. And I'm thinking, wow, can you believe them over there? And I'm thinking, look how good we are. And don't you see the absurdity in that? Here I am. At my wit's end, comparing myself to another family that maybe is slightly worse off than we were at the time. And the point was that as long as we measure ourselves against others rather than Jesus, we will always think of ourselves more highly than we ought because there is always somebody worse than us. Always. But Paul says here, by the grace given to him, friends, I say to you, This is really the first sign of a transformed mind. A renewed mind is a humbled mind that has a mind like Jesus himself. This is exactly what Jesus said, isn't it? Matthew chapter 20. Jesus says maybe some of the most shocking words that you would expect from a king. Jesus called to his disciples. He said to them, you know that the rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them. And their great ones exercise authority over them. It shall not be so among you, but whoever would be great among you must be your servant, and whoever would be first among you must be the slave. Even as the Son of Man, that's Jesus himself, even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. So notice back to our verse in verse 12, our passage in verse 12, or Romans chapter 12. Our life vertically before God as a living sacrifice what that actually looks like with a renewed mind actually lives itself out horizontally as we love and serve God's body, Jesus' body himself. How do you serve God? Well, you serve Jesus' body. That's what Paul says in Romans 12, beginning in verse 4. He says, For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. Let us use them. See, what Paul is saying is no matter what your gift is, use it to serve God by serving his body horizontally. Doesn't matter what your gift is, serve Jesus' body, serve the church. And Paul goes on, he says, hey, if your gift is prophecy, then prophesy in proportion with your faith. If your gift is service, then serve to the one who teaches. Teach to the one who exhorts in exhortation. If you contribute, give in generosity. If you lead, do so with zeal. And the one who does acts of mercy, do so cheerfully, not reluctantly. Do so cheerfully in thanksgiving and gratitude to God. 
See, our relationship to God is lived out horizontally as we serve one another, as we serve God's body, the body of Jesus. And if that's true, if that's true, then the words of Martin Luther, the famous reformer, are especially true. Martin Luther once said, God does not need your good works, but your neighbor does. God does not need your good works because Jesus accomplished all the good works on your behalf. God doesn't need anything from us, in fact, because Jesus, our Savior, provided everything we need to stand before God. And so it's fitting to end a sermon made completely of questions. I want to ask us one final question. Not a question of Paul, not a question of the text. No, the question is a question to us. Question number four, what if we lived this way? What if we live this way? As God's people, as Deer Creek Church, if you lived in the full embrace of Jesus himself, and you know that you were completely forgiven by him and God no longer needs your good works, but your neighbor does, I'd wager if we believed that, if we believed that, then we would change. Our minds would actually be transformed, that we would have renewed mind. And I would wager you would finally be free. You would finally be free. Free to think of yourself, not to think of yourself or to look out for number one, but finally free to serve. Finally free to live a life of gratitude toward God, not fear and resentment toward God, or not to live for the approval of God or earn the favor of God, and free to serve others without expecting something in return because we know in Jesus we have everything that we need. And I just think I was continually saying these words of the prolific hymn writer. Her name was uh, Elvina M. Hall. Elvina wrote these words. You probably know them. You probably sang them in church before. I hear the Savior say, Thy strength indeed is small. Child of weakness, watch and pray. Find in me, Jesus, thine all in all. Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Our sin had left a crimson stain, but he washed it white as snow. In light of the mercies of God, we give Jesus our all, knowing our sin has been erased and we are free to serve this great God in gratitude.